Turn in your Bibles with me, if you would, to the second book of Kings, chapter 17. When I was a student at Moody Bible Institute with Fred Flintstone and Barney Rubble, I was taught that 2 Kings 17 was one of the top 13 key chapters of the Old Testament. Okay, he, our, our Old Testament professor, Paul Benware, gave us a list of 11 foundational books that told the big story of the Old Testament. I've been preaching them through them since 2003 with you. And we had to memorize one, and for some of those books, two key chapters that captured the high points, or low points as the case may be, of the Old Testament storyline. Genesis chapter 12, Abraham. Exodus chapter 12 and 20. The Red Sea rescue and the giving of the law. Numbers 14, the retreat of unbelief. Joshua 6, the the conquering of Jericho. Judges 2, the cycle of the judges. 1 Samuel 8, David. 2 Samuel 7, the Davidic covenant. 1 Kings 12, the division of north and south under Rehoboam. And 2 Kings 17. And then 2 Kings 25 and Ezra 6 and Nehemiah 6, which Lord willing we'll eventually get to. So this chapter, 2 Kings 17, contains one of the turning points of the whole Old Testament. It's been coming for some time and it's finally here. It's the story of the last king of Israel. And it's the story of Israel's exile to Assyria. 2 Kings 17 is where that broken record that we've been listening to, the broken record of the northern kingdom, finally skips off the turntable. And we come to the end of that sad, sad song for the north. Unfortunately, the ending of the song is just as sad as the middle was. So let's pray together and then we'll see what actually happens and why and how sad it is as we read 2 Kings chapter 17. Let's pray together. Lord, we've just sung about that one foundation for the church. Jesus Christ. He's why we're here. And we pray that He would stand forth in the preaching of Your Word. As all of this that we read anticipates His coming, His ministry. We want to know nothing, Lord, except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. First and foremost, at the center of everything, including this message, we pray He would get the glory. Open our ears, Lord, and open our hearts to hear Your Word. We pray it in the name of the crucified and risen One, the one foundation, Jesus Christ. Amen. 2 Kings 17, you found it? Listen to verse 1. In the twelfth year of Ahaz, king of Judah, last guy we read about last week, Hoshea, son of Elah, became king of Israel in Samaria, and he reigned nine years. Here's the guy. Hoshea starts out like every other one of them, and we ask the big question, right? Thumbs up or thumbs down? Little hint for you, he's, the, he's a king from the north, and they've all been thumbs down. All right, verse 2, he did evil 
in the eyes of the Lord. But not like the kings of Israel who preceded him. Apparently, he wasn't as bad, though he had assassinated his predecessor. But it was too little, too late. Verse 3, Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, came up to attack Hoshea, who had been Shalmaneser's vassal, and had paid him tribute. But the king of Assyria discovered that Hoshea was a traitor, for he had sent envoys to So, king of Egypt, and he no longer paid tribute to the king of Assyria, as he had done year by year. Therefore Shalmaneser seized him and put him in prison. You see how the author keeps repeating this phrase, the king of Assyria, the king of Assyria, the king of Assyria. Assyria dominates these chapters. It looms over everything. I think I said last week when it started to get mentioned from here to the end of the book, it's like 48 times the king of Assyria, the king of Assyria. King Hoshea had tried to switch sides. First by playing it both ways and then by switching over allegiances from Assyria to Egypt. He had been a vassal. He'd been sending some money ever since his predecessor had done that to kind of try to keep Assyria off his back. I'll be a vassal state of you. But now I kind of want to go over here to Egypt and see if maybe I can get a better deal over here. Didn't work. The newest king of Assyria got wind of this condemned Hoshea for treachery and tossed him into prison. But even worse, the king of Assyria came and laid siege to Samaria, the capital of Israel, and then took the bulk of the people into exile. Look at verse 5. The king of Assyria invaded the entire land, marched against Samaria, and laid siege to it for three years. In the ninth year of Hoshea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria and deported the Israelites to Assyria. He settled them in Hala, in Gozan, on the Haber River, and in the towns of the Medes. The people of Israel had to go into exile. Mass deportation from their own homeland. We saw last week in chapter 15 that some of them had already been taken away by the king of Assyria. Well, now it's basically all of them it's the bulk of the nation imagine if another nation beat our country in war and then moved just about our whole population to their country and moved some other people here into our homes that's what happened they had to leave their homes and be moved somewhere else now the big question that this raises is why right Why did this exile happen? Was it because King Hoshea wasn't a very good politician? Was it because King Hoshea wasn't a very good diplomat or military strategist? Was it because he didn't grease the right palms? Or worse, was it theological? Was was the reason a defect in Israel's God? I'm sure that's what Assyria thought, that, that, that that's what it was. Assyria's gods were obviously more powerful than Israel's God, right? This is a very sad thing. Why did this very sad thing happen? I think that in some ways the entire books of Kings were written to explain why this sad thing happened. It's all been driving to this moment. Verse 7. All this took place, why? Because the Israelites had sinned against the Lord their God who had brought them up out of Egypt from under the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. They worshipped other gods and followed the practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before them, as well as the practices that the kings of Israel had introduced. Why did this exile happen? 
Because Israel had sinned against the Lord. Because they had bad kings who led the nation to do bad things. It's not that they weren't smart or savvy or clever. It's that they didn't love the Lord their God and lead the people to love Him too. They had just one job. And they failed it. So I have four points for you this morning. And I want all of them to be God-focused. Because we can get stuck on the bad kings and the bad things. But this book is here to reveal our God to us. The same God of the last king of Israel is the same God that we are worshiping here in Lance this morning. And He is revealed in these pages. So here is point number one of four. The Lord is holy. The Lord is holy. The God of 2 Kings 17 is a holy God. Israel was choosing to sin against a God who is utterly holy. You know, you can only really sin against holiness. You can't sin against sinfulness. Look at verse 7 again. All this took place because the Israelites had sinned against the Lord their God. That was their mistake. And it was a sin of ungratefulness. It was a sin of ingratitude. Because this was the God who, verse 7, had brought them up out of Egypt from under the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. See, this is one long story. We've been reading 2 Kings, but this is attached to Exodus, isn't it? They forgot the Exodus. They forgot their own story. They forgot their rescue. In fact, they ignored it. A holy God had revealed Himself to Moses at the burning bush and He had said, go get My people and bring them out. I'm going to rescue them and give them the land I promised their father Abraham. And He split the Red Sea and He did it. And this is how they repay Him? Verses 8-12 through 12 are a quick summary of what we've been reading in these books ever since June. There are no surprises here in verses 8-12. through 12. The author just reminds us of the case against Israel. Verse 8, they worshipped other gods and followed the practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before them in the book of Joshua, as well as the practices that the kings of Israel had introduced, like Jeroboam, son of Nebat. The Israelites secretly did things against the Lord their God that were not right, as if the Holy One of Israel couldn't see. From watchtower to fortified city, they built themselves high places in all their towns. They set up sacred stones and Asherah poles on every high hill and under every spreading tree. At every high place they burned incense, as the nations whom the Lord had driven out before them had done. They did wicked things that provoked the Lord to anger. They worshipped idols, though the Lord had said, you shall not do this. In other words, they sinned against a holy God. And they made Him an angry God. You see, God is not naturally angry. But He is by nature holy. He's naturally holy. His nature is holy. And that means He must become angry when He encounters sin. And friends, that's a good thing. You do not want a God who feels ambivalent about bad things. You don't. When He sees injustice out there, Oh well, hope that gets worked out. Or not. Whatevs. We all long for a God who is good. Perfectly good. Who loves what is right and hates what is evil. Who gets righteously angry about the right things at the right time. 
except when we're the ones who are doing the sinning, of course. Then we're not so sure that we're happy that He's holy. But He is holy. In fact, He is holy, holy, holy. And that means that this wickedness that the nation of Israel had perpetrated was going to provoke the Lord's anger. But not too quickly. Because, number two, the Lord is patient. He took His time. Look at verse 13. The Lord warned Israel and Judah through all His prophets and seers. Turn from your evil ways. Observe my commands and decrees in accordance with the entire law that I commanded your fathers to obey and that I delivered to you through my servants, the prophets. He didn't smack them upside the head the first time they sinned. He's patient. He's long-suffering. That's why First and Second Kings feels so long. Like it just goes on and on and on. It's because the Lord is being patient. And perfectly so. I wouldn't have. Because I ain't perfect. He waited just the right amount of time. And He sent them warnings. He sent them prophets with warnings. Elijah. Elisha. Amos. Hosea. Anybody read those last week? Amos and Hosea writing at the same time as these chapters that we're reading? What was their message? Shuv. Turn. Repent. Come back to Me. God is not just waiting for a chance to pounce on unbelievers. Ha! Gotcha! No. No, it's turn. Don't go there. Come back. You see, God is both holy and patient. And perfectly so. Now, most of us want God to be either one or the other, right? Sometimes we want God to be patient with us and righteously angry with somebody else. Get them, Lord. Sick them. Be kind to me. But God is perfectly holy and perfectly patient, and He's the same God today. Right? Same God. New Testament, 2 Peter 3, the Lord is not slow in keeping His promise as some understand slowness. He's patient with you. Not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Catch that? Patient and wanting repentance. He's he's holy. You need repentance. It's not like, oh, whatever. But He's long-suffering with sin. He's seeking repentance from sin. Turn. But He's allowing time. He's patient. Verse 14, but they would not listen. And were stiff-necked as their fathers who did not trust in the Lord their God. They rejected His decrees and the covenant He had made with their fathers and the warnings He had given them. Warning after warning after warning. You ever wonder why there's so much profit in your Bible? Because there was so much warning. They followed worthless idols and themselves became Worthless. Ooh, that's quite a sentence, isn't it? There's a biblical principle at work here that we become like what we worship. You ever thought about that? You become like what you worship? If you truly worship the Lord, you will become like Him from one degree of glory to another, the New Testament says. But the opposite is true as well. They followed worthless idols and themselves became worthless. So you are what you eat. 
You are what you dream. You are what you think about and dwell on. You become what you worship. So be careful what you worship. It wasn't supposed to be like this. Verse 15, they imitated the nations around them. Although the Lord had ordered them, do not do as they do. And they did the things the Lord had forbidden them to do. Do you feel the author's exasperation with Israel? They were supposed to be holy. They were supposed to be different. You and I are supposed to be holy and different as well. Do we stand out from the world around us or do we do the exact same things that the world does? Are we just as angry, just as scared, just as mean, just as impatient, just as unforgiving? Or do we stand out as loving, joyful, peaceful, patient, kind, gentle, faithful, self-controlled? Do we chase after the same gods as the world does? You become what you worship. Verse 16. They forsook all the commands of the Lord their God and made for themselves two idols cast in the shape of calves and an Asherah pole. They bowed down to all the starry hosts, astrology, and they worshiped Baal. They even sacrificed their sons and daughters in the fire. They practiced divination and sorcery and sold themselves to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, provoking Him to anger. There was an end. He was patient, perfectly so. But his patience is perfectly long and no longer because he's holy. Verse 18. So the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them from his presence. What a sentence. Only the tribe of Judah was left, and even Judah did not keep the commands of the Lord their God. They followed the practices Israel had introduced. Friends, that's a little foreshadowing of what's to come in the rest of 2 Kings. Israel's going to be over after today. But that southern kingdom, they're behind Israel in badness, but they're following. And eventually they're going to catch up. But now Israel is basically no more. Verse 20. Therefore the Lord rejected all the people of Israel. He afflicted them and gave them into the hands of plunderers until He thrust them from His presence. And just in case you're still wondering why this happened, He goes over it again. When He tore Israel away from the house of David, 1 Kings 12, they made Jeroboam son of Nebat their king. Jeroboam enticed Israel away from following the Lord and caused them to commit a great sin. The Israelites persisted in all the sins of Jeroboam and did not turn away from them until the Lord removed them from His presence as He had warned through all His servants the prophets. So the people of Israel were taken from their homeland into exile in Assyria and they're still there. We would say, at the time of writing, they are still there. Do you remember the prophet Ahijah? I bet you don't. There's been so many, so many names that under the uh, going over the spillway, right? Now I'm not saying Elijah, Elijah or or Elisha, but Ahijah. Ahijah was the prophet that Jeroboam's wife went to in disguise. Do you remember that? Jeroboam split the nation, set up the calves at Bethel and Dan, Asherah poles, kind of created his own thing. And then, he, and then his son was dying, and he sent his wife, all dressed up in a disguise. She gets to the door, and the disguise, he, he doesn't even look at her. He says, why are you here, Jeroboam's wife? Right? You remember that part? 
Ahijah told Jeroboam's wife that this was going to happen. That this exile was going to happen. 1 Kings chapter 14, we noted it when we were there together. Israel was going to go into exile. But, God waited around 200 years to do it. The Lord is patient. Take comfort in that. And use the time that God allows to reach people for Jesus' sake. Because He's being patient right now to the whole world. Everybody living, He's being patient with you. But don't mistake that patience for slowness. Or weakness. Especially moral weakness in God. God is holy and He will not be patient forever. The very, the very next verse in 2 Peter 3, after telling us that God is patient, tells us that the day of the Lord will come like a thief. He can move fast when He wants to. At the right time. Don't mistake His patience for complacency. Israel refused to repent. They persisted in their sins and, the, and those sins came back to land on them. Israel went into exile. Now this next part of the story is, is interesting history, but it's really sad too. If you feel sad when you read this, you're feeling the right thing. That's what, that's what God wants you to feel. That's how, why He wrote it this way. So you get that as you read it. Because the king of Assyria didn't just take the Israeli people out of Israel. He resettled pagan people back in it. Look at verse 24. The king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kutha, Ava, Hamath, and Sepharvaim and settled them in the towns of Samaria to replace the Israelites. They're living in their houses. They're farming their land. They took over Samaria and lived in its towns. When they first lived there, they did not worship the Lord, so he sent lions among them and they killed some of the people. There he goes again with the lions. You never know where there might be a lion attack in the books of Kings. It was reported to the king of Assyria, the people you deported and resettled in the towns of Samaria do not know what the God of that country requires. He has sent lions among them which are killing them off because the people do not know what He requires. Interesting, isn't it? That these pagans are more concerned with God's requirements than God's people have been with God's requirements. And the king of Assyria gave this order, have one of the priests you took captive from Samaria go back to live there and teach the people what the God of the land requires. So one of the priests who had been exiled from Samaria came to live in Bethel and taught them how to worship the Lord. Now how how good of a job do you think he did at that? These northern priests weren't worth very much before the exile. I doubt they're they're that great now. Look where he settled. Bethel. That's one of the sites of the golden calves, right? I doubt they've learned any lessons. Here's the lesson they should have learned. The Lord is jealous. The Lord is jealous. What is the first commandment? You shall have no other gods before me. How are they doing at that one? Not so good. And these people that are now in the land, they don't do very well at it either. Look at verse 29. Nevertheless, each national group made its own gods in the several towns where they settled and set them up in the shrines the people of Samaria had made at the high places. The men from Babylon made Sukhoth Benoth. The men from Kutha made Nurgle. And the men from Hamath made Ashima. 
The Avites made Nibhaz and Tartak, and the Sephirvites burned their children in the fire as sacrifices to Adramelech and Anamelech, the gods of Sephirvayim. Notice it says made. They made these gods. Let me tell you, any god that you can make is worthless. Any god you can make is not worth what you make of it. Verse 32. They worship the Lord, but they also appointed all sorts of their own people to officiate for them as priests in the shrines at the high places. They worship the Lord, but they also serve their own gods in accordance with the customs of the nations from which they had been brought. To this day they persist in their former practices. They neither Worship the Lord, nor adhere to the decrees and ordinances, the laws and commands that the Lord gave the descendants of Jacob, whom he named Israel. They had just one job to do themselves, and they also failed it. Verse 35, when the Lord made a covenant with the Israelites, he commanded them, do not worship any other gods or bow down to them, serve them or sacrifice to them. But the Lord who brought you up out of Egypt with mighty power and outstretched arm is the one you must worship. To Him you shall bow down and to Him offer sacrifices. You must always be careful to keep the decrees and ordinances, the laws and commands He wrote for you. Do not worship other gods. Do you sense a theme here? Do not forget the covenant I have made with you and do not worship other gods. Rather, worship the Lord your God It is He who will deliver you from the hands of all your enemies. They would not listen, however, but persisted in their former practices. Even while these people were worshiping the Lord, they were serving their idols. To this very day, their children and grandchildren continue to do as their fathers did. And that, my friends, is why they are in exile. That's why they are in trouble That's why Assyria swooped down and decimated the north. Because the Lord is jealous. He will not give His glory to another. Do you know what the present day application of that is for us? Do not worship other gods. Same for us as for them. We still need to be told that today. Now I think there are very few people who worship Sukkoth Benoth or Nurgle or Ashima or Nibhaz or Tartak today. If you know anybody, I'd like to be introduced. But people today do worship money, pleasure, power, popularity, security, pride, possessions. We can turn anything into an idol. The Apostle John said to the New Testament Christians, Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Do not worship other gods. Don't go there. One of the biggest reasons why we have the Old Testament is to show us how zealous God is for His own glory and to warn us to put Him absolutely first in our affections and worship. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. In other words, do not worship other gods. What are the other gods you're tempted to worship today? What are the idols of the heart that threaten to capture your attention and capsize your walk with the Lord? Don't wait. Topple them. Fight them. 
kill them, destroy them. Take a chainsaw to that Asherah pole. Don't give it a foothold. Don't persist in your sins like these folks did. It only led to grief. I've got one more point for you this morning. I know we're out of text at at the end of chapter 17, and we're not going to chapter 18. It'll be somewhere mid-February before we get back to 2 Kings. But I haven't told you yet about the last king of Israel. Because it wasn't Hosea, even though he was the last Hebrew king there for a very long time. The next human person in the Bible to be called the king of Israel doesn't come until your New Testament. Can you guess who it is? Who is it? It's Jesus, yeah. In John chapter 1, Nathaniel, he he comes to realize it and he blurts it out, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. On Palm Sunday, as the crowd swelled around him and he came in on the donkey, they shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Here's point number four. It needs to stay in the mix because it's the rest of the story. The Lord is loving. And He's on the hunt for people to show His love to. You know what they call these people that lived up north in the former Israel? The few that were left behind after the exile and they married all these strangers, the foreigners that got brought in. Do you know what they called these people that lived around Samaria? The Samaritans. Exactly right. And you remember what the Lord Jesus, when He came through Samaria, and He he had to come through Samaria, John 4, says He had to. Not because that was the closest distance between two points, a straight line. No, it was a circuitous route, but the Lord wanted Him to go to Samaria and run into a certain woman by a well at Sychar. And He showed to her the love of God. He told this Samaritan woman that the Father was seeking worshipers. That God was on the hunt for people to show His love to. And she got it. All the lights went on for this woman. She realized He was the Messiah that they had been waiting for all along. And and she told her whole town and her whole town came out and many, many, many of them came to believe in Jesus. And they said, we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. Friends, Jesus is the last king of Israel. And he's all the king that Israel will ever need. 2 Kings 17, while important, is not the end of the story. It's not the end of the story of the books of kings. And it's certainly not the end of the bigger story that kings is embedded in. 2 Kings 17 ends badly and sadly. But the bigger story does not. In the bigger story, The king of kings comes and makes everything right. The king of kings comes and gets recognized by some as the true king of Israel. While others reject him as the king of Israel and send him to the cross. You know, on the cross, they make fun of him for claiming to be the king of Israel. If you are the king of Israel, they say. Those are the words they use. But three days later, he proves that he is in fact the king of Israel. He comes back from the dead. And one day, He will come back again from heaven as the rightful heir of all of the promises. 
including the promises to David and be the king that Israel always needed. Because the Lord is loving. He's not just holy. He's not just patient. He's not just jealous. He's all those things and perfectly. That's why we need the cross. That's why we need evangelism. That's why we need repentance and faith. But He's also loving and perfectly so. And He's on the hunt for people to enjoy His love forever. Jesus Christ is the true King of Israel and the King of Kings.